Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thank you for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about stories containing people's first impressions of Jesus. Before it plays, I want to make you aware of something that is happening in our church right now. Like for many churches, COVID and everything connected to it was really hard. As I've mentioned before, due to not being allowed to use the school we normally meet in, we had to do church from eight locations in 13 months. On top of that, about a third of our congregation moved out of the state. Despite the challenges though, God has continued to move in our church. We are growing, people are getting baptized, and we're even finding new ways to serve our community. In fact, we're working this year with another organization to provide children who have been victims of human trafficking a good Christmas. Here's the reality. Despite the good taking place in our congregation, the challenges of the last year have made money really tight. Right now, we are doing a fundraiser to make up for the deficit that we plan for in our budget. Thankfully, someone has graciously offered to match the first $5,000 donated. That means for every dollar donated, $2 will come to our church. So here's my big ask. If you are in a position to make a donation, it would be incredibly helpful to our church and the future of our ministry. I know that not everyone can do this, and I really don't want you to feel guilty if you can't. But if you can make a donation, a donation of any size, we would appreciate it so much. If this is true for you, you can go to creekside.me donate. Make sure to select the matching fundraiser when you choose where to give. Every single dollar will help us to continue to move forward as a church that helps people experience and express God's glory. One more time, the website is creekside.me donate. Again, thanks for listening. I really do hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Good morning again, uh, afternoon, uh, you know what it is. Uh, I'm a little bit like Faye in that, you know, I became a Christian at a very young age, four years old, committed my life to Jesus, and, uh, you know, you don't understand everything that you're doing at that point, but you, you grow into that, right? And, uh, and we're in this series on on first impressions. There's this section of John. We started the book of John uh, a couple of months ago, and he starts with this giant theological prologue, and, and he lays out all of these really big ideas surrounding Jesus. And then there's kind of this rapid succession that we're going to cover over six weeks. There's this rapid succession of people encountering Jesus for the first time. And, and I can't even remember what that's like, be, being a Christian, you know, from four years old, having an understanding of Jesus and what he, he did for me at four years old. Like, I can't even remember what that's like. And, and a big hope in this series is that for those of us that have been Christians, that are Christians, that we would be drawn back to, you know, kind of remembering what that was like to experience Jesus for the first time. And on the other side of that, the, the hope is that, that for people who aren't Christians, that maybe they could see Jesus for who he really is, and, and maybe get a glimpse of, of, of how people saw him before, you know, before all of the, the kind of struggles that sometimes people go through to really see the true Jesus were piled on top of him, right? Because now, you know, as a person that lives today, we, we almost have to fight through baggage to be able to see the real Jesus. A, a person apart from Christ has to look through layers and layers of of, of things that are falsely taught about Jesus, uh, of things that, 
uh, that are, you know, cultural and, and we kind of make Jesus into our own culture. They got to look through the way that his, his children, us that are Christians, sometimes represent him. There's a lot of things to look through. And it's my hope in this series that we'll kind of, you know, help people see, you know, Jesus just kind of without all of that. Just how did people see him when they first saw him? And, and the story we look at today is... Um, it's interesting because it's like, it's like Jesus' first impression to the world almost, not like to individuals. It's actually the first public sign, as we'll see. It's the first public miracle that Jesus does in his entire ministry. Now, we don't know. Maybe Jesus had done some, seen some miracles, done some miracles. He'd seen God do things privately. Maybe he'd you know, prayed for somebody sick in his family and God had worked a miracle through him and all that. We don't know that. But as far as public ministry goes, this is the, the first thing that Jesus does as a sign to the world that he is who he says he is. Now, just as a, a reminder uh, for the first time for many of you, I uh, John's laid forth these big ideas, like I said, about Jesus, that he is the word. And we talked about how really that points to him being the answer to the questions that we ask about God. They can be found in Jesus. That's a huge claim, right? And, and John said that, that Jesus is the creator of all that has been created. Big, big claim. And now Jesus steps into the public limelight and he does this thing to really say, look, first thing that says all of these things are, are true. Now, before we look at this passage, I mentioned this, but I want to say it a little bit more clearly today. And that is this, the book of John, I've heard it, I don't think this is a good illustration. And by the time we're done preaching, I'm done preaching through John, I'm going to, I'm going to find a better illustration. But this is the one that was told to me when I was uh, in seminary, when I was working on my master's degree. Uh, it's like that John is like an onion and you know, you peel away one layer and then there's another layer there and you peel away another layer and there's another layer there. And and I said a couple weeks ago that, that, well, that's really neat. It doesn't really fit me. Like I just kind of want simple, right? Uh, But today I bring that up again and I will find a better illustration than an onion. If you have one, let me know, give it to me. I'll use it next week or the week after. But but for today, I bring that up because what you're going to see here is that there are so many double meanings in this passage. That's basically my whole sermon, is to say this is a double meaning, and this is a double meaning, and this is a double meaning. And the, the, the hard part is trying to decipher when a double meaning is intended and when it's not intended, right? Because we don't want to go too far, and we don't want to like read Jesus 8 and then like create a theological discourse around that if the author didn't intend for that. That's the goal, by the way. Of, of biblical study, if you're a Bible studying person, then your goal is to try to figure out what the author meant. That's the number one goal. And when I preach, I'm just trying to present to you some helpful information that hopefully helps you understand what the author meant and then, uh, and then some, you know, hopefully helpful other content to inspire you to actually live out what the author was intending in the first place. And, and here you're going to see these these double meanings, and I, I did my best this week to try to, to try to see, I think this is a double meaning, and this is, you know, not maybe, and so hopefully that will be, uh, that will become more clear as we move throughout. Now, the other thing here is that John 2, 1 through 12, 50, I know that's huge, that's like 12 chapters, that would take you like, 
you know, a good amount of time to read. This is often referred to as the book of signs because they are signs. It contains signs that point to Jesus being that which John is trying to tell you Jesus is. And this is, again, the first public sign where Jesus shows up and he's like, look, I am more than just some guy. This is the first of those signs. And these signs all point to something really big, something that really is alluded to in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There is something new and better that has come upon the earth in the person of Jesus. And these signs are meant to reveal that or to show that or to prove that. And here's how our story today begins. John 2, 1 and 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Uh, This detail happens on the third day. It's an interesting detail because John is, like I've said, he's like a poet that doesn't seem super concerned with the chronology of events. He writes thematically more than chronologically. And, and so it's interesting that he's given us a couple of, of like days here. Like he's laid out some details around days. And this is where you begin to go like, is he trying to be deeper here or is he not? Like, do we go deeper or do we not go deeper? And, and here, maybe we should. Because commonly in the New Testament, the third day refers to something really important. You probably could guess. It refers to the resurrection. It refers to what happens on Easter, that Jesus came back to life. And so here, as John says, it was three days later, it's caused a lot of people to say, is this in some way pointing to the fact that this Jesus later on will be the same Jesus that comes back from the dead as he conquers death and sin for all people? But there's another option too, going back a chapter, you see these, these other days laid out, and so it, it begs this question. You can, you can kind of do the math, and you come up with this is the seventh day or the Sabbath day. And uh, for Jewish people, Jewish readers of the book of John, they would have great connection to the Sabbath, right? Like God created the earth in six days. On the seventh day, he rested, and then he tells people you should rest on the seventh day as well. And throughout the Jewish history, there's this weird relationship to the Sabbath and obedience to it and non-obedience to it, but it's always meant to be this good thing. Jesus himself says that, that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, basically saying, hey, for, for non-Jewish people, they don't, need to, they don't need to live out the Sabbath in you know, some legalistic way. They don't need to follow the letter of the law, but they should know that it was made to be good for them. God wanted you to have a day of rest, and there almost seems to be this picture here that Jesus makes his public proclamation on the Sabbath as if to say, I have come to give rest to your souls. Anyway, don't know if those things are true, but, uh, but they might be because John is deep, right? And, and it seems like he has some of these things that he just wants you to at least think about as you move through, as you move through his story of the life of Jesus. And um, here, Jesus and his brand new followers, who I talked about last week, if you missed the sermon, go and listen to them. They're at this wedding. I really feel, 
I don't know why, but I really feel like these guys, the, the new followers of Jesus, they really crashed this wedding. Like, I mean, good night. They meet Jesus, and now they're all of a sudden at a wedding with him and his mom. It just feels like they're like, hey, is there free food? And remember now, these are, you know, some of them young men, right? And so uh, I would have gone. Like, I mean, that I would have been like, hey, is there food? If there's food, I'll be there. Uh, and we'll see in a second that, uh, well, I'll tell you now, uh, these wedding parties could go on for like, like a week or two right? Like this is not, I already, by the way, I do not like wedding receptions very much. And so if they last two hours, I'm like, come on, get to the first dance already so I don't have to go home. There's going on two weeks, but free food, I'm in for that. And so that's what's happening here. They've come to this wedding. It's Jesus, his mom, and, and his new followers. That's who's hanging out here. And this is what we read. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, this is what you need to really hear this, um, because I don't think this is true for us. It's a little bit true in our society today, but, it, but in this culture at this time, like running out of wine would have been incredibly embarrassing. The groom is the one who had to pay for for the wedding party, can you imagine, like, a couple weeks worth of food and wine, like, good night, like, I'd have to get a new job if, uh, you know, I would have had to get a new job, I'll tell you that, Uh, but, like, he was responsible for paying for this deal, and to run out would have been horribly embarrassing, And, and I think running out of food in our, you know, our current wedding culture would be a little bit embarrassing, but you have to remember, this is, this is part of a shame and honor culture, right, like, not Western in that regard. So for this guy to run out, you know, like this is shameful. That's a better word than just embarrassment. Like he would have been ashamed and and that shame may have lasted. And, And I even read, this is crazy to me, but he actually may have been, there's historical, uh, documentation to suggest that he might've been like liable in a court, like he could have been sued by the bride's family for running out of wine at this wedding. That's nuts to me, but, but this is like, you know, this isn't like a Bible statement. This is like there's historical evidence for this. Some of you who like wine are like, yeah, that's how it should be, but, uh, but, but I cannot believe like th- that idea, but this is how bad it is for this guy. And so Mary, a lot of people think, was part of the, the party planning committee. Like Mary was was maybe helping cater this deal. So when they run out, she's like, oh no. And she turns to her son. Now, we don't know if she knows that Jesus, you know, has miracles at the uh, tip of his tongue or anything like that. But, but she's probably a widow at this point. And she has learned to rely on, whether because of supernatural events or just natural events, she's learned to rely on her eldest son, who is Jesus. We know that Jesus, before this, had actually worked as a carpenter. And so she is looking to the person that she has learned to rely on because widows had to rely on their eldest male children in this society. And so she looks to her son, whether for a miracle or just because she's like, I guess he'll have to go to the store, you know? I mean, like, he's, he's got to figure this out. She turns to him, and his response is, is really fascinating. I mean, here's the creator of all that has been created. That's what we've read in the prologue. And she turns to him, and he's like, woman, which, by the way, not as harsh as it would be in English, but definitely not like a term of endearment here. Like, he is, he is in some ways criticizing his mom. Not as harsh of a criticism as, as it sounds like in English, but he's definitely uh, giving her a subtle 
rebuke. The, the, I, I read you know, a little bit about this, this word woman because it does. It sounds not so friendly, right? Uh, and what I read that it's probably closest to that we can, that we can connect to in our English would be the word ma'am. Uh, but not ma'am in, in like, I'm going to be super obedient to you way, but ma'am in just, this is respectful, but a little bit like disconnected from, you know, calling you mom in this moment or whatever. So you're like, hey, ma'am, uh, like you would say to a waitress. I think I said it perfectly right there, actually. Forget the explanation. Just take my tone of voice on that last statement. Ma'am, like, why are you getting me involved in this? My hour has not yet come. And that's the real key part here because hour or time in the book of John is a very specific reference to the time in which Jesus will be glorified. Now, glorification in John is a very specific reference, not to the resurrection or when Jesus went back up into heaven. It's to all three of the major events at the end of Jesus' life. His death, like the cross, that's part of the glorification of Jesus. His resurrection, where he comes back to life. And then his exaltation, where he goes back into heaven, his ascension back into heaven. This is what John refers to as the glorification or the glory of Jesus. And so Jesus here is saying, it's not time for me to do what I have come to do yet. It's not time for my death and my resurrection and my ascension back into heaven. It's not time for that yet. It's interesting if you just follow this hour deal in the book of John that uh, nine times he says uh, something about his hour, like this time when he's going to, you know, be moving towards the cross and death and resurrection and ascension uh, nine times. And the first few times he says, he says, my time has not yet come the first three times specifically. And then the last six times he says, my time has come as he begins to move towards those pivotal moments where he changes human history. But before, before all of that happens, verse five, he says, mother, his mother said to his, the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, I like this. I, I picture this moment just so much like, you know, I would picture a mom looking at their son who's just given him a gentle rebuke, and, and the gentle rebuke matters very little, right? Like, I'm not bothered by you, son. Like, I know you, you know? And uh, that's, how I, that's how this just feels to me. So she turns to these servants at this wedding, the waiters, and, and just like, do whatever he tells you do whatever he tells you and and it's interesting because because there seems to be so much more here there's not that many recorded statements by mary in the bible there's actually seven things that that the mother of jesus says in the bible seven things that she says Uh, and this is actually the only instruction given by mary the only commander instruction that she gives and i don't know if this is intentional on John's part, but whether it's intentional or not, it's really beautiful because it is an incredible picture of faith. Her instruction here, her response to this gentle rebuke by her son is an incredible picture of faith, and it's a call that all of us should heed. Uh, Listen to what she does. She doesn't try to talk Jesus into this, right? She doesn't say, I don't care about your hour, boy. I'm your mother, and you'll do whatever I want you to do. Like, I mean, that's not her response. She, she just commits the matter to him knowing, I think, that whether he does whatever he needs to do to help her or not, that he's done the right thing. 
I mean, what, an, what a thing for, I thought, I thought about that, you know, like, think about that, like, what if we just took on that mentality when it comes to Jesus? We request something of Jesus, and, and, and we just look in our hearts, and we say, if he says yes or no, I absolutely trust it. I absolutely trust it. And then she says this thing that really, do whatever Jesus tells you. I think that's just incredible advice. Like, I think we would all just live better if we just did whatever Jesus told us to do. We did the Sermon on the Mount. I finished preaching through that several months ago. And man, like if we just tried to live out Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we just took the words that Jesus put there, and we just tried to do whatever he told us to do, just, you know, all over, of course, but in, the, in that giant sermon preached by Jesus, if we just tried to live that out, I promise that we would live better, and I promise that our world would be better if every Christian did their best to just do what Jesus said to do. I love that Mary says, here, I commit this to you. You guys just do what he wants. Whatever happens, happens, but the command is so important to do whatever he says. We should do whatever Jesus says and then just trust him for the results of our life. Whether we think they're good or bad, we should just trust him. And apparently she had learned to do that from spending a lot of time with him, like 30 years with him, right? She just had learned to trust her eldest son and just say, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what he says, but also I'm gonna trust him with the results. And here's, here's how the story goes. Nearby stood stick, six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants had drawn the water new. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choicest wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests had had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. Now, there is no explanation on what exactly is the point. What's the big idea here? Uh, as a kid growing up in conservative Christian home, I knew this story as the one that, that people had to find a reason to say that Jesus didn't really like us drinking wine, right? Like, that's, that's, the, that's how I knew this story. It's like, wait, there's wine and Jesus made it? Like, let's figure out how to deal with that right there. That's not the point here. Uh, the point is not that Jesus hates wine. That's how I knew this passage. Like, man, Jesus hates wine. That must be the whole point of this 11 verses. Uh, there's something bigger here, right? Like, this is, this is the beginning of his public ministry. Like, this is the moment that, that Jesus pronounces himself to be on the scene. So what is happening here? There's, um, there's, there is these stone jars. And the, the New International Version, which I just read of the Bible, it actually says the kind used for ceremonial washing. That's not actually uh, a very literal translation. And, and really, it just says stone jars. But the NIV is trying to help you and I see something in how they translate this because stone jars were very valuable. And the reason they were valuable is because in Old Testament law, stone jars didn't become ceremonially unclean. So if you, if you don't know the Bible, if you're, you know, never read through the Bible, if you don't know any background of, of Jewish law, there, there were certain things that were seen as clean and certain things that were unclean. And so, uh, you know, that could change. Like if you 
got some kind of mole on you. It might be an unclean mole, and then you would be unclean for a while. You had to not hang out with people and stuff like that. Uh, if certain things spilled, you know, then unclean. Let's not touch it for a while. It's unclean, there's clean. And, and these stone jars, they would not become unclean. Other kinds of jars would. And Leviticus 11.33 talks about clay jars. If one of them falls into a clay pot, everything in it will be unclean, and you must break the pot. So you go out, right? And, and now this is opposite of me, but, but like, you know, a lot of times people in different socioeconomic, you know, situations to me, they go out and buy the expensive things so that they don't have to replace it later. And that's what is happening here. Like you buy the stone one and not the Walmart one because you know that you might have to break it, the bad one, the Walmart one, it's gonna break for sure. And then you, later you like don't have to replace it, right? And so people would buy these stone jars. And at a wedding, they would be brought out perhaps so that people could wash their hands and the utensils could be washed and they would know that they were religiously, ceremonially clean. That's interesting, right? Because Jesus has shown up on the scene not to abolish the laws, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, but to fulfill the law. And here there's this really specific mention of the kind of jar, which seems like this detail that I don't care what the jar was made out of, but it seems to be specific because it's in some ways talking about the relationship between God and people and how that is shifting in this moment. And I I think what it's saying is this, before this moment, the way in which Jewish people had a right relationship with God was jumping through the hoops of the Old Testament law. But now in this moment, Jesus' ministry is beginning and all of that changes because following the law perfectly was impossible. And so jumping through those hoops wasn't gonna get you the right relationship with God that hopefully people longed for. But now Jesus had arrived on the scene and he was the way, he had become the way in this moment perhaps, he had become the way in which people now could have access to a relationship with God. He says, draw water. I think of John 4. I don't know if there's an illusion, but there's this great story in John 4 where, where Jesus ends up at this well with the Samaritan woman who's you know, had a bunch of husbands and nobody in culture would like her. She'd be totally unclean. And, and Jesus sits with her and, and talks to her as she's trying to draw water. And he tells her that you could, you could have water, living water. We'll never have to draw water again. And man, it feels like there's symbolism there. But these guys, they fill the water to the brim. They fill the jars to the brim. And it sure seems like there's something about, like, like it's finished, right? Not in the way Jesus says it on the cross, but like that system has been completed, it's been filled up, it's reached its pinnacle, and now it's time for something new and better in the person of Jesus. It sure feels that way to me. Like they fill up this this symbol to the brim. It's like this is done. Like you can't jump through enough hoops. You can't perfectly fulfill the law and access God. It's now only done through, through Jesus and the ministry that Jesus 
came to do. It makes me think about this phrase that John has already used, grace in place of grace. The giving of the Old Testament law was so gracious. God said, here's what you you do. You just live like this and you can stay kind of in a right relationship with me. And John says that grace has been given in place of grace. And and, and that Old Testament law was gracious. God wanted his people to be healthy, like in a physical sense, and and to, to be able to be in his presence. And so he gave them this law. But now something so much better has arrived on the scene. Grace has been replaced with grace. And this is represented by Jesus turning, you know, this water that fills this symbol for the Old Testament system with something so much more valuable, so much more, so much better than water, and that is the wine. But what should we make of this wine? First of all, it's, it's completely, and, and do not miss this, it's an act of grace which will demonstrate be demonstrated in the entire life of Jesus. Think about the poor groom, right? The poor groom has messed up completely. He's going to run out. He's going to be embarrassed. He's going to be shamed. He might run the risk of a lawsuit. It's crazy for our, you know, by our standards, but that's what he's facing here. And instead of that, Jesus supplies him with the best wine and makes him look totally good to everybody at his wedding. This is absolutely, without question, a picture of the grace that God dispenses upon us. Like this groom, each of us has messed up. We've sinned against God. That's the story of scripture. That's the story of Jesus. We've done things that are sinful, that that, uh, have gone against the will, the nature, the character of the God who created us. Every single one of us. And, and like this groom, we all stand to, to just feel shame. We do feel shame, right? We're embarrassed by our sins. We feel shame. We know that, that if people knew our sins, knew what we were like deep in our souls, then, then man, we would be worse than, than even it is right now for us. But God sent Jesus so that Jesus could be glorified, die, come back to life, rise into heaven again. And that means that that we can have those deep, dark sins forgiven and we don't have to feel shame anymore. Shame can be replaced by forgiveness and salvation. And this turning of water into wine is such a clear picture of that. The groom, does, you know, in his society, deserves shame and embarrassment, but Jesus rises above that and said, I'll give you grace in place of grace. I'll offer you a blessing, a gift, an expensive gift instead of the shame that you were set to face in the first place. Second, it's, it's, it's a sign of, of the age of Jesus coming in in Amos 9, 13. 14 and 14 says the days are coming declares the lord when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by one of the by one of the treading grapes new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills and i will bring my people israel back from exile they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them they will plant vineyards and drink their wine they will make gardens and eat their fruits it was a sign that a new day had dawned upon humanity when God would bring his people back. And so not only is it a picture of grace, but it is a sign that there is a new blessing coming upon earth in the person and the ministry of Jesus. And by the way, this is a lot of wine, like 150 gallons of water being turned into wine here. And one commentary says, Jesus' conversion of such a large quantity of water into wine would indicate 
that the long-awaited kingdom of God had arrived. God himself had drawn near in the person and ministry of Jesus and the fulfillment of the promise of abundant blessings was beginning to be fulfilled. It is a sign of how much Jesus can bless you, can benefit you, can change your life, can bring you joy and peace and hope. It's like, it's, it's just ridiculous, the amount of wine. And it's meant to say to you that the coming of Jesus means that you can be ridiculously filled by the grace and all that comes along with the grace of God. It also seems to point to a future, the messianic banquet. Jesus uses this language of a heavenly wedding that will take place when he comes back again. And it seems to jump right from the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the very, you know, not end of Jesus' ministry, but, but the future that we look forward to if we have placed our faith in Jesus. It points to the moment where we will be perfectly filled by the goodness of God at Jesus' return and we will celebrate for eternity. It points to the fact that we are filled up with grace now, but it points to the day in which we will celebrate like, like nobody's business, like we can't even imagine here on earth. I look at my uncle because he's sitting right here. This just popped into my head here, but the greatest moment of celebration we've ever lived together is when Damian Lillard hit the shot against the Houston Rockets. Uh, I wish it was like the birth of my children. I wish it was my wedding. I wish it was something else. But Mike would attest that we've never celebrated more than that single night. We were there, he hit the shot, and we went absolutely nuts. Like we lost our ever-loving minds. And the wine is meant to symbolize that a day is coming when we will celebrate like that. We will celebrate like that. Notice that he says, you have saved the best till now. That's what the guy says, the, the MC, the guy overseeing this thing. He says, you have saved the best till now. God has always been abounding in love. The Old Testament makes that clear. But he has saved the best for now when Jesus came and Jesus offered his life for us. And in all the layers of this, right, it's really important that we, that we don't just miss that this is an incredible miracle, right? And it's witnessed by the one writing it here. And I'll keep harping on this as we move throughout. This isn't like somebody telling the story of somebody who maybe heard that Jesus did this thing. This is a guy who's at the wedding and sees Jesus turn 150 gallons of water into wine and wants you to know that it points to Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God. John 20, 30, and 31 John gives the point way at the end of this book. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, this, of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote down this sign. Jesus did this sign in order that you might believe that Jesus is the one who can set things right in your heart because he is the Son of God. In verse 11, John 2, 11, it says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of signs of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the first sign in which he reveals his glory. John 2, 1 through 12, 50 is referred to as the book of signs. I told you that. Uh, chapters after that are often referred to as the book of glory but it's important here to notice that even at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the, the book of signs, the beginning of the book of signs, it's all pointing to the glory. 
that Jesus will die for you and I sins, that Jesus will come back to life conquering death, and that Jesus will ascend to heaven where he sits and he rules and he reigns and he calls all people unto himself in the hope that every person will become a Christian and be forgiven of their sins. The New American Commentary says, the signs therefore point the reader to the reality that the God of the Old Testament has acted anew in Christ Jesus. And here the disciples believe in Jesus. I may have misspoke last week. I said maybe there was a moment of conversion. And now as I move through John, which I've done before, so I should have known this, I'm thinking this is the moment where they really commit themselves to Jesus. They've been interested in Jesus. They've chosen to go to a wedding with Jesus. But now they choose to believe in Jesus. Belief in the book of John is a big, big idea. It it doesn't mean just to to say, oh, this is true. It means to commit yourselves to someone. This is the moment, I think, where these disciples, they go from an interest in Jesus. Is this the Messiah? I think it is the Messiah. Let's spend some time with him to saying, I will follow this guy around for the rest of his life and really the rest of their lives too. As it connects to our series as a whole, it's interesting to me because this is the, this is the, the party in which Jesus says, I'm here. My ministry has begun. And there's a handful of guys who believe in him. But there's a bunch of other people who barely take notice. And we have the servants, the master of the banquet, and the groom at this party. One group is silent completely. The servants don't say a word. One person is impressed, like, hey, you saved the best to last. And the other person, I believe, is just happy to look good. But a few people, a few people, the disciples, they believe. And I think the reality from all of this, there's so much depth here, right? There's so much that this says about Jesus and how he wants to change your life and make your life better. But the reality is you can look upon the signs of Jesus and choose not to believe. You can peel back all of the layers, see how amazing this story is and how it connects on so many levels to different theological points and nuances and still be indifferent to him. But I hope, and I think God hopes, that you won't. Because from the very beginning to the end of Jesus' ministry, the impression that he wants you to have is that he has come to die for your sins. He has come to die so that you can have access to God. He has come to die so that you may have peace and joy and hope. He has come to die so that you may spend eternity with him. And even at the very beginning of his ministry, when he's still years out from that death and that resurrection and that ascension, His very miracle points to the fact that he's come so that you may have grace and you may have it abundantly. We can all see the same things from Jesus and come to very different conclusions. We can all see the signs and the wonders and the miracles and come to different choices. But the only choice that leads to 150 gallons of wine, spiritually speaking, is the choice to believe in him. And so I hope that we will all believe, and those of us that do, we would remember the great, the great joys that have come along with that belief in our lives. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this miracle and all the miracles that point us to the reality of who you are. And not only, God, because I think what's shifted here in this sermon and in this passage of scripture is that we've moved from seeing who you are to seeing really what you can do for us. God, for those of us who are Christians, we know, Lord, that we have dark days like everybody else. We have struggles. Uh, We have not been made 
perfect God, even when we have been forgiven perfectly, Lord. And God, sometimes that can make us forget how incredibly much you have blessed us and all the great things that we've had. You know, as, as Faye was baptized today, Lord, it's, you know, God, she'll, she'll, like me, God, have moments in her life where she forgets, where she forgets how great it is to live life in you, how abundantly rich your grace has been for her because she'll, 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 not remember a life without you, Lord. And I love that. I don't want her to ever think about a life without you, God. But Lord, for those of us, you know, like me, Faye, other Christians, I pray that you return to our minds and our hearts today just how abundantly gracious you are to us. And for those, God, that sit in front of me, whether online, here in person, God, that have not chosen to believe in you, that have not chosen to give their lives to you, that have not chosen to follow you, I pray that that they would today would choose to do that, God, and they would choose, Lord, to give you their life so that they can experience, Lord, the incredible gifts that you want to bestow, to give to them, Lord, to bestow upon them and give to them. I pray that your Holy Spirit, God, would speak into their hearts today. No matter what their first impression of you is, has been, God, I pray that they would have a new impression of you today, and that impression would be that you are the Messiah and the Savior the Son of God, and they would give their lives to you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.